Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com backslash startup. Thank you, Alex Pattis, for the introduction to today's guest, Pippa Lamb, who is a partner at Sweet Capital. Sweet Capital is an early-stage investment fund built by the founders of King.com, the inventors of Candy Crush. Pippa focuses on early-stage consumer technology investments ranging from software and next-generation social communities to fintech. This was such a fun and fascinating conversation as we talked about the gamification of social, why she splits her time in LA and London, and what she finds most interesting about those two markets, how she evaluates opportunities, as well as her focuses. Without further ado, here's Pippa. Pippa, thank you so much for taking the time, especially during these uh, these crazy times. How are you? I'm good. Thanks, Mike. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's it's fun to be here. Let's talk about from the beginning. What what attracted you initially to become a consumer investor and kind of transition from the world of kind of later stage private equity down to venture capital? Yeah, I mean, look, this is the ultimate question. Um, I think for me, it really comes down to my earliest experience of entrepreneurship, which was growing up alongside my father, who has been a lifelong founder and innovator himself. He's always run his own company. My, some of my earliest memories are just him being so obsessed with his craft. I, I like to describe him as like a half inventor, half engineer, uh, who has this kind of obsessive passion to create a product that is truly novel uh, and best in its class. So, I mean, in his case, that was uh, pretty niche. That was repurposing an old technology that was originally used in Spitfire engines uh, into high-performance and turbocharged cars. Um, but being around someone who truly lived and breathed uh, entrepreneurship, I think, really always inspired me from a very early age to want to be around that ecosystem. So, you know, I think even though I started in later stage investing or kind of more investment banking research type finance, I've really always been working my way back towards entrepreneurship. And, you know, when I look back at it, don't get me wrong, like I really enjoyed working in public markets. um, But there's something really special about being that close to the entrepreneurial journey, which I think you particularly get in venture capital, but also in the very early stages of of, uh, venture capital, you know, but investing in public markets and, you know, later experience in private equity was, was really helpful for me in understanding, you know, the bigger picture, the macro, the industry, to borrow a kind of commonly used analogy, I like, it's, it's picking the race that you want to run. Um, whereas I think on a, on a weighted basis, it's VC is much more about picking the right horse and like the right jockey within that race. Um, and then, I mean, to your question on consumer, look, I just think there's something really magical and special about building a product or a service that touches you know, millions of users at scale and, and brings a sense of delight. Um, I, you know, I've loved that at all investment stages, whether it's more physical consumer or CPG and public markets or private equity. 
um, or now uh, in consumer software, uh, where I, I focus as, as a VC. That's awesome. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about Sweet Capital for those that aren't familiar. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, it's it's funny. The clue is in the name, right? So it was founded by the the five founders of King, uh, otherwise known known as the the games developers behind Candy Crush. Um, so the five founders, uh, they they founded Sweet after they uh, exited the company, sold it to Activision Blizzard in 2015 for around 5.8 billion dollars. Took exits from that, and you know fr- from I guess that experience wanted to use some of those proceeds to really feed it back into the entrepreneurial ecosystem. Um, so it, it's fun for me because the founder's DNA is very much in every decision we make. Um, it's only our own capital. Um, so we really like to be able to be as, as aligned to the founders as possible. We see ourselves as able to be the most structurally aligned uh, investors on the cap table. And I guess the other thing that's that's interesting about Sweet is that uh, over time, we realized where we could really be uh, most useful to, to founders and add most value is in the areas of the market that we have most experience, right? So for us, that's uh, everything that sits on the kind of periphery of gaming, you know, coming from that gaming DNA. So, you know, consumer technology, consumer mobile, consumer social, uh, you know, this word gets very much overused of like gamification, but unfortunately it is still the very apt way to think about the types of businesses where we find ourselves the most useful, you know, whether it's from user acquisition, retention, data analytics, you know, we take a lot of inspiration from gaming. Um, and, and yeah, we look, we focus on pre-A, we like to go early. Um, and our typical check size is usually between like half a million dollars to, you know, maybe a million, uh, so C pre-A. Got it, got it. And, and, and how many investments do you typically make um, make a year? And the fund is mostly then, um, or or is all consumer, is that right? Yeah, exactly. So we've we've over time become very uh, sector specific, like geographically agnostic, but sector specific around consumer. Um, and yeah, I'd say we we tend to do around you know, five to seven investments a year and, and also reinvestments. So, you know, our ideal is go in at, at seed and then continue investing in the A and probably up to around the B. I know that you're back and forth between LA and London. What are some of the differences in those two ecosystems? Yeah, sure. Look, I think it's really interesting. I mean, the question comes down to, again, you know, why why we like those two markets. Yeah, as mentioned, we're very focused on consumer, consumer mobile things that our gaming experience can be relevant to. So I think for us, very naturally, Los Angeles was always appealing to us, right? You've got this incredible heritage of media and entertainment and then you know, marry that with some of the engineering talent that's been brought down by companies like Snap, like TikTok, like Tinder, uh, and a general migration from the Bay Area. So for us, that's created like a really interesting hub around the sectors we're most passionate about. Um, So for us, LA has always been a a place that we wanted to spend a lot of time. Um, I think the differences uh, between, say, Southern California and the European market, where obviously, you know, King was founded in Europe and there is this incredible gaming heritage in, in Europe, there is there are less operator-led VC funds or consumer investors in Europe versus in the US, where typically a lot of the venture capitalists have come from more of an operator background. So for us, you know, our value in Europe is that we can actually differentiate on a product level. I mean. 
if you look at our team, Sebastian Knudsen is still chief creative officer of King. You know, he's designed over 150 games for, for King, including Candy Crush. And, uh, you know, having him be able to sit down with you and, and you walk him through your product is pretty cool. Um, similarly, you know, we have a venture partner, Alan, who was also at King and really led scaling their performance marketing initiative. You know, at one point they were yeah, they were Candy Crush was, I think, was making seven million a day in revenue, and they were spending one million um, on Facebook ads. So, you know, it's very rare to have someone who's had you know that level of experience scaling a consumer product. Um, so, yeah, we 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 like to play in those two hubs because we see that um, that's where we can add most value to to the founders. That makes sense. Looking at it, um, I thought that was interesting what you said about how Europe has less operator-led funds. How do you see um, on the venture capital side in Europe shaping up? Are you think maybe in the next five, 10 years, there's going to be more operator-led funds in, in Europe? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, I'm extremely bullish on Europe uh, when it comes to early stage investing. In fact, um, we, we just did two investments in the last uh, six months in Europe, which were both in consumer social. Um, and I think that for us, you know, there's a reason why we have offices both in Europe uh, and the US. Um, we are definitely long uh, European tech. I think that perhaps the, the reason that there is just a time lag in the operator funds having, having a presence in Europe is that they've traditionally gone where, where they were based. So uh, a lot of the funds in the US um, were at perhaps you know, global, but for initially American companies. Uh, and then when they go to create their, their venture funds, of course, they're going to spend that time working with the ecosystem that they're familiar with. Um, on our side, you know, King was founded in Europe um, and you know, Europe has had uh, some incredible exits or unicorn companies in gaming. And for us, you know, we like to invest alongside some of these other gaming unicorn founders. Um, and and I, I'd hope that, you know, there are going to be more and more operator-led funds as some of these founders exit their own companies and actually can spend time, uh, you know, investing back into the ecosystem. Uh, you see that with Atomico, with Nicholas Zenstrom from, from Skype. And certainly I, I would put, you know, the five fans of King, my colleagues in that bucket as well. On the founder side, what, what are some quality or traits and founders that you that you look for and kind of your investment criteria? And obviously there's a few. Uh, firstly, I would say re re resilience. There needs to be a reason why that, you know, the individual is willing to sacrifice everything for this opportunity because there are plenty of paths that are easier to pursue. So, you know, why is this the problem that you absolutely have to solve? You know, to take my father, for example, again, you know, he just simply wanted to prove that he could be the absolute best in the world at what he did. You know, second, I think is, they need to be able to demonstrate an ability to execute and kind of just get things done. At the very early stage, especially, it's 99% execution and then 1% vision. I mean, that 1% is the most important, but it's up to the founder to really prove that they can uh, execute on that vision, build a moat and, and scale um, in a way that's going to be defensible. And then thirdly, I think that this is one that perhaps doesn't get as, as often quoted as things like resilience and, and ability to execute. But for me, it's always about demonstrating a pretty robust moral compass. Um, 
I think of this in two ways. I think firstly, as an investor, I take the implications of the capital I'm deploying very seriously. You know, capital is at its most basic uh, is an enabler. It's leveraging idea, it's a magnifying an energy. Uh, do I like what that looks like at scale? And I think with Sweet, we try to be very mindful about backing founders who are really dedicated to causes that are going to make the world better and not simply for, for financial return. Again, some of that comes with the independence that, of it being purely our own, own capital. And then secondly, I think on, on the moral compass, you know, the founder really sets the culture of the company. So when they're building a team, the individual or the individuals we back are going to surround themselves with like-minded individuals and really set the tone and cadence for the culture. Uh, and so we want to make sure that those they have really solid values that you know ultimately we're aligned with and we're proud to support. Cool, no, no, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was just curious if if you might have such conviction in the founder and the problem that they're trying to solve, but you're actually not convinced with their current solution, but you think that they're going to figure this out. Look, I think that's why in the, that list of characteristics I included resilience. Right, I think. Ultimately, especially at the early stage, it's an opportunity as a whole, but the founder has to be the most important thing. Ultimately, we are, we're picking uh, an investment because of our, our belief in that particular person to execute that vision. And the vision, you know, they probably know the direction that they want to go, but they may need to test, they may need to pivot, they may need to iterate. However, if you really truly believe that this founder is someone who is resilient and who will look at failure as being constructive and, and help them learn more and ultimately come up with a better solution, then I think that it's, you know, you're going to, you're going to back the individual over the idea every time, which is why I say, you know, to founders, like, what is your unfair advantage in making this a reality? Because it, it's not just about, you know, as you said, the, the business idea, it's about why is this founder the right person to execute this business idea? You've got to believe that they are going to figure it out uh, and you're going to support them through that. Awesome. Awesome. Does unfair advantage simply mean experience or how do you think about unfair advantage? It's a, yeah, it's a fair question. I think that, you know, the, the obvious one to think of is that you've had previous experience as a founder in that area or you're a product specialist in the area that you're looking to, to build a company. But I think it can come in multiple forms, right? I don't think it's such a linear comparison. Um, you know, to use an example, one of the founders that we backed in her kind of previous career had actually been nothing to do with technology. She'd been a human rights activist and her experience had been building an NGO and being part of a, a civil rights movement in a country that was completely different to where she was ultimately going to be building her company. We looked at her and we said, has she built a, comp a tech company? No. Uh, but did it require her to build and motivate a team and and develop the type of leadership skills that are relevant to building a company now? Absolutely. Um, so I, I think it's very difficult to, to exactly specify, like this is, this is what an unfair advantage means, because I think for everyone, it can be quite different. Um, and I think that example was, a, was clearly one where you know, she wasn't a typical founder, she wasn't from a technical background, yet there was something in her kind of DNA as a founder that was absolutely exceptional to build a company versus perhaps someone else who was was obsessed by the space but hadn't had that leadership experience in the past. That makes sense. I know we talked a bunch now of, uh, of founder qualities. Wanted to switch gears and talk about metrics and, and early traction. I had on Jason Stouffer from Maveron on the show and in, in earlier in her career, he really put a lot of weight 
on early traction. And, and now he thinks that early traction could actually be like a false positive. Want to just gauge how you think about traction. Yeah, I mean, I think that he makes a really good point, right? I think that often when you look at something like financial KPIs, ultimately those are backward looking. So what we're really looking for, um, perhaps in that same that same vein, is it's like forward looking indicators of growth, right? So I think for me, when it comes to consumer, the the easiest way to think about it is consumer love. You know, how sad would these users be if the product no longer existed? What sort of relationship do you have with the product? What is the psychology behind it? What role are you fulfilling in their lives that was previously, you know, partly met, but mostly unsuccessfully elsewhere? I think for us, it, it's you know, early traction is important, but we're looking for a very specific type of uh, early traction as opposed to something like downloads. Um, you know, take an app, for example. What's really important is to see the quality of those interactions. So for us, it's much more around, you know, retention cohorts, you know, how many People are logging in um, on a seven, 30 day, 90 day basis. Um, you know, another one that's really important is how much time are people spending in the app? Look, time is our most expensive asset. How quickly and how early can you tell how much of the user's time they're willing to give up to spend on your product? How viral is it? For every user you're acquiring, you know, how many more people do they bring? This is a proxy for your organic growth. Uh, and it also helps you kind of dig deeper into what engagement even means for you. Um, I mean, I think for, for some products, that's going to be how many friends uh, do you bring on the platform or how many, you know, how much media do you share? Like maybe early for, for Instagram, it would have been, you know, how many photos do you share? For some products, you may only need to bring two people on to retain as a user. Whereas for another product, it may be more like 10 or 20 to make you really retain as a user. But there's ultimately always a ceiling that you hit at which the marginal benefit of adding, you know, an extra friend or uploading another photo is, is zero. For us, if you're seeing really early consumer love, if you're seeing, you know, whales, uh, to use the, the gaming term, emerge, then, then that to us as that kind of NPS score is the best proxy for product market fit. Quite simply, it's looking really at at time as obviously a very scarce resource and and how much time users are actually um, engaged. What right now specifically are, are, are some trends that you're really excited or, or, or even some companies that you're personally just uh, uh, really interested in? I think it's a really interesting time for consumer, first of all. I think that given everything that's happened in 2020, you're seeing a lot of new consumer behavioral trends take place. I think like, you know, research shows that it takes 60 days for us to form new habits. And we're in like, I don't know, day 80 or something right now of this new normal. So uh, it's been a really fun time for us at the fund, kind of observing some of these trends and seeing which uh, types of products have either accelerated and coming to market or, you know, were perhaps um, have, have been created brand new during this time. Um, so some of the themes we like are um, like the verticalization of social, I think is one that we've we've been focused on for some time. Um, you know, how, how to explain that social used to be about breadth and volume, you know, platforms, platforms were basically a virtual directory for you to have as many people as possible. Um, and then users would kind of filter down their network into small interest groups or specific communities. I just think those types of platforms are kind of exhausting to customers now. Like there are so many large social networks, there's so much noise. They really want to just focus on, you know, the communities that they care most about. Um, you can look at that with our investment in Peanut, which is a social network for, for women, um, or our investment in Yubo, which is focused on the teen market. 
Um, I think another theme that we like is kind of self-improvement and identity exploration. Um, this is one of those ones that I think falls into the category of having been expedited by some of the COVID, you know, isolate or shelter in, uh, at home, um, you know, behaviors. I think that people are more than ever willing to connect virtually and, and are looking at technology to basically facilitate that. That falls into, you know, a whole range of categories from consumers wanting to seek solace or advice from uh, other people in the community, you know, be it mental health, uh, or kind of moral support. And so, you know, we've made a few investments in the kind of self-improvement space. There's there's one uh, in particular that's actually from LA, which is still sort of in stealth, so I won't mention it, but it's very much kind of a play play on that. Um, we're also an investor in a company called HiRise, which is a creative avatar community that has over 3 million users who really come to the platform to express themselves virtually and um, and it's kind of this identity exploration. So that's that's super interesting for us. And then I guess one more I'll highlight is, um, I, say it's, I call it social for a cause. So, you know, there are lots of platforms now where consumers are clustering together because they really believe in in a particular shared interest. Uh, I guess it's a little bit similar to the, to the verticalization of social, but take, for example, climate change. Um, you know, we're looking at platforms that really help um, drive uh, users to be able to to meet with like-minded people and actually take action towards like a particular cause you know climate change is an interesting one because there are lots of ways you can do this whether it's buying carbon offsets or you know having leaderboards with your friends so those are three that we're looking at at the moment and then i'd say there are a few others that have kind of crept in with with covid as well on the verticalization of social since since we now have um you know, I think folks right now engaging a lot more, um, since it's more verticalized, more in-depth um, conversations and more meaningful conversations around it. But maybe because it's verticalized that 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 the, that the companies aren't going to achieve um, the scale that traditionally you had. Are you are you seeing maybe a shift in, in business model from advertising to a SaaS type platform where you actually pay to be a part of communities, um, but you know that you actually get more value from these communities? Yeah, totally. Look, I think it comes down to that. Like, you know, if it's free, then you're probably the product, right? So I think that with these more kind of niche um, or smaller vertical uh, social networks, um, people are really there because they care about the content or the community that they're being a part of. So as a result, yes, it's going to be uh, a more concentrated user base. You know, I I hesitate to use the word, you know, that they're going to be less um, necessarily smaller. I think that they're just going to be a lot more focused. So um, I, I think that advertising can work in some of these, but I, I do think that it becomes more appealing to go, as you say, down like a SaaS route. Equally, like this is where uh, monetization strategies that we look at in gaming kind of come to the fore. So it could be, you know, in-app purchases, it will be a freemium um, that converts into more like a premium subscription. Uh, or even in some of the kind of social apps we look at, it could be things like tipping. Um, so I, I'd say that, yes, it's generally is moving away from the blanket, you know, reliance on advertising. Uh, to really generate revenue for the company. I could see folks, you know, starting a social app and and thinking, oh, we'll just monetize by advertising. And I question whether that business model almost actually, it it, it changes now how you communicate online socially with, um, with more in-depth conversations if that more turns into a subscription because you don't have 
um, uh, that quantity to really be able to uh, capitalize on the advertising. Yeah, look, I, I think consumers have just been over advertised to, right? And they now just want to spend quality time with communities that they care about. And, uh, and, they're, and they're willing to pay for it, um, ultimately. Yeah, and, and I think also if you're willing to pay for it, then you also probably become more engaged because you know that you're actually paying for it each month. So I want to talk about COVID. There's a tailwind for, I think, a lot of actually the categories that, that, that you mentioned. Um, how are you thinking about post-COVID uh, with these categories and um, if the tailwind will no longer be there because, you know, folks are back to work, there's, you can actually socialize properly, not just, uh, online. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think it goes back a little bit to that statistic that I mentioned of it being allegedly around 60 days for us to form a new habit. And we're now like at what, 80 days through that. So I think initially I was one of the, the people who was pretty aggressively saying, look, I think everyone is just you know, being way too linear about the behavioral change we're seeing, you know, people are taking the the trends or, or consumer trends that are coming in because of COVID and actually extrapolating that out. And I think we have to be really careful about trying to figure out which of these, which of these consumer changes are temporal and circumstantial because you're literally stuck at home uh, versus some of these changes that have come in and are going to be more enduring. Uh, so I, I started trying to track this, I guess, in, in March when everything was really first kind of happening, I guess, in the US and, and Europe. And so I actually looked to the Chinese market, which uh, I used to cover. And it's it's one where I, I still find a lot of the consumer trends happening there to be fascinating. And I said, OK, let's use this as a kind of time machine. Look, they've only got like three or four months extra of hindsight, but of the consumer trends that came in to the Chinese market during this initial shelter in place uh, period, you know, which of these have been enduring? And a lot of them have actually been a lot stickier than I expected. Fitness from home or like, you know, everything going virtual, purchasing things sustainably. I, I actually quite concerned for some of the more traditional, you know, gyms or, or things like this, where you've had three months of, of figuring out a solution. And actually a lot of consumers have decided they like the new solution better. I think the other thing is that uh, if you look at like the retail sector or e-commerce, there are changes that were made during that time that do have enduring um, implications after COVID ends. I mean, there are stores who have basically shut down completely offline and gravitated a lot of their traffic online. Now, that isn't just going to sh- uh, stop straight away uh, as soon as the stores open again. And in some, in some cases, some brands have permanently closed some of these stores. You know, there, there are kind of structural triggers that that some of these changes have brought about or accelerated that I think, you know, it's not so easy to just switch back on afterwards. It's a little bit wait and see. Um, but I think one of the, the things which has been very helpful as a tailwind for our portfolio is it's made a lot of consumers a lot more open to trying out engaging in, in different consumer social platforms. Um, so one of those categories, I'd say that's benefited a ton is 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 audio and voice uh, and we've seen quite a lot of interesting innovations in that time that maybe before customers would have been or users would have been more skeptical over and now hey guess what we're all locked up at home it's a great time to try out you know a clubhouse or like a road trip or experiment in with an avatar platform like high rise so that's been something that's been super interesting for us to observe and 
I'm actually pretty bullish about the fact that a lot of these will stay and endure past that, um, p- past the kind of pure COVID period. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that that makes a lot of sense. Are you are you finding it difficult um, right now as you um, diligence and meet with founders to find conviction um, within founders uh, virtually rather than since you can't meet them in person? It's, you know, it's funny for us because I guess because we split our time between Europe um, and the US, like we're actually pretty used to uh, meeting people virtually or like we've, we've actually done I'd say, a good amount of our deals virtually. So even pre-COVID, um, it would not be unusual for us to, to issue a term sheet without meeting the founder in person. Now, I think that's less of a design and more of just the reality of us um, being you know primarily an investment a small investment team that is is always on the road um i think we've been pretty nimble and 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 open-minded in saying look if we can't meet you in person like we will find other ways to diligence or or get to know you um so for us actually it hasn't been a huge huge change no that's that's great that's great Uh, because i've had i've i've had mixed reactions uh from investors some investors uh they find it really tough to find conviction um, virtually and others are um, are uh, we're actually meeting founders virtually I think similar to you uh, pre-COVID so so for them it wasn't it it wasn't a major change it's funny because when we were talking before pre-COVID we were talking about how consumer technology has been um, and consumer social has been, you know, out of favor per se with investors. But it seems like, like, like during COVID, it's really been been become very in favor with with investors. It's so funny because I know you'd said like, yeah, some say that like investing in consumer is kind of contrarian, and I was like, yeah, that must be that must be like a pre-COVID quote because. <laughs> because I mean, the amount of people who are like, oh, like consumer socials back. I mean, I remember the the day that Clubhouse like got its like a hundred mil valuation from from Andreessen. I just like I tweeted like, hey, I'm for one happy for consumer social, right? I I feel like you know it's a time in which people are being forced to look at the the category again. We probably have around sixty percent of the of the portfolio in in social, and we'd expect that to grow uh, with some of the tailwinds that we just discussed. Consumer is uh, is back in favor, and we're we're happy to see more uh, people looking at the space because it means that you know founders are going to see it as a more desirable place to build. I mean, I think it's also right. Like, it depends which area of consumer. Like, we're we're primarily focused on like software on like platforms. You know, if you're like a pure like direct consumer or like a retail consumer investor, it's you know that's a completely different conversation. And you know, certainly, when I was in uh, my previous fund, uh, that was you know much more retail or physical consumer. Um, focused so but i like certainly from where sweet sits and how like gamification is spreading across like different types of consumer social then yeah, it's a really good place to be absolutely absolutely what is one thing that you would change when it came to venture capital it's got to be pretty obvious for for someone coming from my background i think that uh you know equal representation for for, for females and ethnic minorities is just something that i i just still feel like vc is not is not there on yet. Um, you know, if you look at the US in 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 the last quarter, like, you know, exclusively female founding teams made up less than 5% of teams and, you know, down from what, 7% the year before. Uh, and, you know, people, uh, you know, persons of color founders was like less than 1%. And if you go into the market where I'm sitting right now, the European VC market is, is just as scary. 92 out of every $100 
uh, in Europe also goes to all male teams and like 83 of that is is white white uh, white founders so for me I think like a true level playing field for founders doesn't come just from having a greater number of ethnic minority and, and female founders but also equal representation across all stages of the you know founder entrepreneurial ecosystem you know, the founders don't just act in isolation we need more female and POC engineers product leads and investors of, of course so I mean, that that for me is still the kind of number one thing that I I would like to see venture capital do a better job on certainly this is very top of mind um, especially during these times um, and and what's happened in the past few weeks but you know what I've been thinking about as well is just thinking about networks and you know I've I've had venture capitalists on this show and, and others I've talked to that say, you know, yeah, we don't really either like the cold email or, or, or really needs to be an introduction to a founder to, um, it's, it's, you know, being able to, for, for a founder to get in touch with us, do a warm introduction. That's a testament to the founder. Or that's like that minimal. What, what could we be, I don't, how do you think about, you know, the cold email and about your network? Yeah, look, I find, I find the kind of, um, reliance on the warm introduction to be troubling because I think that it inherently uh, favors some of the biases that I've just described you know I, th I think that it's difficult to get rid of the warm introduction and certainly we're not going to say like no one can recommend a founder to an investor you know there are there are very good reasons often behind those warm introductions but I think it's just really important that that investors do not um restrict the funnel of their deal flow to those warm introductions. So for me, um, you know, I try and be as, uh, as, as open as uh, I can with, with cold emails, with, you know, Twitter DMs, like these things that often people maybe spend less time going through. Um, I also just think that, you know, you can have a quick call, like you don't, it doesn't matter if, if you don't have a warm introduction with that founder, if, if they share with you something that inherently is exciting and they have an interesting background, like why, why would you need a warm introduction to, to qualify that? So I try and, I mean, especially when it comes from, uh, you know, either ethnic minority or female uh, backgrounds um, such as myself, then, you know, I've, I try and do my bit when it comes to also spending time with the various networks or organizations or, or mentoring organizations that have been created, um, you know, either in, in Europe or in the U S and, and really try and make time to, to speak to people who, who really don't come from a quote unquote traditional uh, founder background. I would much prefer people who've not come from a traditional background. If tradition is, is where we've come from, you know, I think that um, going forward, I, I hope that, we will be able to back uh, an equal amount of um, ethnic minorities and, and and female founders. That's really great to hear. I just uh, I know there's been a lot of chatter about uh, about this issue, and that's really really great. The um, what you do and 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 just your approach and how you think about it. Thanks for sharing. What's what's one book that inspired you personally, and one book that inspired you professionally? On the personal one, I was actually given this book by a friend of mine recently, which I had actually read when I was younger, but I hadn't revisited. Um, and it's called The Alchemist uh, by Paolo Coelho. Uh, and it's, it's basically a um, kind of a fable or a story about um, a young boy who's pursuing his dreams. And it slightly kind of sits on the kind of philosophy, uh, 
fiction, I think really worth reading or revisiting perhaps um, now, because I think I, I looked and I read, read it with a different perspective than I perhaps probably did when I read it when I was like a teenager. And um, on the professional side, so I'm a massive fan of Clay Christensen and all of his work around disruption. And, you know, he's written, you know, his two probably most famous books or one most famous book is the, the Innovator's Dilemma, which he then followed up logically with the Innovator's Solution. And uh, it's, it really laid a lot of the groundwork of, um, of disruption theory and how we look at businesses. And, you know, when, whenever I meet a new company, it's, it's very rare that I won't apply one of the frameworks that he talks about in his books. Um, so I would really recommend to, you know, investors or founders alike, if they haven't really gone through Clay Christensen's uh, work, um, the innovators dilemma, then I, I would start there. That's all great recommendations. What's your most recent investment and what makes you excited about it? I mean, the most recent investment was actually, um, we did, <laughs> we invested in the series A of a seed company called Peanut. Um, so we, we first invested in Michelle um, quite a few years ago now, but it's, uh, for those of you who haven't come across it, it's a social network uh, dedicated to self-identifying women through going through different life stages. So you know, Michelle is a fascinating founder. She was the early team at Badu, which became Bumble, and was really inspired by a problem that existed in her own life, which I think you know is is often like a great hallmark of 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 a founder um, when they're you know, creating a, a a company to solve a problem they had themselves, which was, you know, why can't women uh, connect more easily with initially um, friends around motherhood, uh, but also now it's like much wider. It's like the whole fertility journey, uh, it could be menopause, and it very much um, rhymes with our thesis around the verticalization of social. That's awesome. That's awesome. It sounds really, really terrific. What's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? So I think that, you know, if nothing else, you have to be an expert on your users. I care less about what other investors think of your product, but I care a lot about what your users or your customers think. Um, it comes down to when we talked about traction and, and that early stage, like what is, what is the consumer love that you're driving? And is that something that is really exceptional? Love it. That's actually that. No, that's a really great piece of advice, and not actually one I don't think has been mentioned before. So, that, so uh, really, that that's awesome. That's awesome, Pippa. This has been so great. Thanks so much again for for taking your time. I hope you enjoyed it. It has been great. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been fun. And there you have it. It was such a blast having Pippa on, and I really appreciate her taking the time to come on the show and talking all things consumer tech. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Pippa Lamb. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.